Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort. Hermione screamed. <coughs> Black leapt to his feet. Harry jumped as though he'd received a huge electric shock. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, everyone. Just one announcement before we start today. We'd just like to remind you that you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. We had a great push last month, and we've added some perks even at the lowest levels. You can now send me a photo of your pet, and I will sort it into a house. Vanessa, this week... Mm -hmm. We are talking about virtue, and you're going to tell us a story about how virtuous you are. <laughs> I'm actually going to tell the opposite story, okay. which is I'm very excited to learn about the etymology of virtue. To me, what being virtuous means is having a value and doing everything you can to live to that value. And like that is a virtuous life. At least that's how I think of it. So Matt, my story is actually a moment in which I feel as though I did not live virtuously, which is I am very anti-gun. I'm pro-gun restrictions and would think that the world would be better without guns. And that is a virtue that I feel like I get to live in the world quite easily. I do not own a gun. I do not have a lot of friends who own guns. So I get to just sort of feel this way and not have that tested very frequently. And then a couple of years ago, we were doing a live show for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I guess about five, six years ago now. And I had gotten a couple of threatening emails from someone who was frustrated by my feminism. And I felt very loved with how our team responded to that. Our musician, Nick Bull, was like sort of 
dedicated to keeping an eye out for me, Ariana. And Casper were very concerned. The venue, you know, was double-checking IDs to make sure no one who wasn't on the list came in. You know, there were, like, efforts at keeping me safe. And as I said, I felt very loved, but I did not feel safe that night. I was very scared all night. And the person who'd sent me the threatening email did, in fact, come up to talk to me after the show. And it went fine. And again, like, Nick was right there and other people were watching. But I, it was a very tense evening. Well, then more recently, about three years ago now, we were doing a live show at a synagogue. And the venue started getting emails threatening me as a Jew who had spoken openly about feminism and feminist ideas, and we'd had an an article written about the show. And so the venue, I arrived, and the venue was like, look, you know, you have been getting these threatening emails all day, so we have hired an armed guard to stand with you. And I loved having an armed guard. He came with me everywhere. He, like, waited outside of the bathroom for me. He, like, walked to me to my car at the end of the night. And I did. I just felt safe all night. He was at the lip of the stage in case anybody walked up toward the stage. While I felt loved at the previous incident, I did not feel safe. I was very on edge all night. And so having this armed guard, I really (laughs) knew the difference. And it was just interesting how much I enjoyed something that I thought I was so morally against. And that to me was a moment of leaving virtue behind because of a specific situation. Because if virtue is making sacrifices in order to live up to our values, I, as soon as a sacrifice was being asked from me, was like values, schmalues. I don't know if I agree, Vanessa. Is is that okay? I mean, given your definition of virtue, where you say... Uh, virtue is living into a value, right? Consistently and thoughtfully. I think maybe the value, the underlying value here is that people deserve to be safe, right? The reason you want to get rid of the excess guns in the world is because people deserve, deserve to be safe. And the reason why it made sense, even though it seems contrary to that policy decision to have an armed guard in this particular instance, is that people deserve to be safe. Now, I mean, that's where it gets complicated because lots of folks have different definitions of what keeps us safe. That's what, right? But I think that the the virtue, I mean, you could think, given the definition you gave, I think that you don't need to necessarily call yourself a hypocrite. You just are looking at like, there's a deeper value that underlies your opinions about things. But the value is people deserve to be safe, right? Does that make sense? Or or am I I trying to save save you too much? (laughs) No, I I appreciate it. I I know how I rationalized it, right? And like, that is one of the ways that I rationalized it. But- I think that if if living in a gun-free world was really my highest priority, I would not, in front of 600 people, have someone standing there holding a gun. Yeah. But that's what I mean. I don't think that living in a gun-free world is your highest priority. I think that you have reasoned that outlawing most guns, maybe all guns, would make the world much safer, which is what you actually value. I mean, you you asked about the etymology of virtue, and this is an interesting case where the etymology of virtue shows us the limit of etymology as a strategy for thinking through these things. Because the word virtue comes from the Latin vir, which means man, and it just meant to be manly, like right. Well, so there was a. It, this comes out of very patriarchal Roman culture, where sort of being a Roman soldier was 
understood as sort of the pinnacle of of human achievement. And so things that Roman soldiers were valued for, like courage and fearlessness in battle and sacrifice and these kinds of things, those were understood to be virtues. And so it derives from the word vir. I think that etymology was actually really interesting for this chapter, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. more. But to your point, the the Latin word for virtue is translating an original Greek word, which is hexis, which is Aristotle's definition. Aristotle loves virtue, this ancient Greek philosopher, and he builds his whole system of ethics around virtue. And his definition is like yours. His is like, what are the habits and dispositions and ways of life that we can cultivate in ourselves so that we can contribute to our own and others flourishing, right? So like, it's a way of being in the world. It's what character traits, dispositions that help you live into your values, right? So the more ancient Greek definition is the one that accords with yours, but there is this weird like Roman transformation of it that genders it and associates it with things like courage and bravery and fearsomeness and fearlessness in battle. Okay, Matt, it is your time to start the 30-second recap, and so much happens in this chapter. So I wish you the best of luck. I feel totally at ease about this. Oh, good for you. It's like a novel's worth. I've never felt more easy about a 30-second recap. So let's go. Let's do it. I'm. Guess what, Vanessa? I'm ready. I believe in you. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Snape shows up and Snape is like, aha, I caught you. And uh, people want to talk to him. He's like, no, I'm shouting at you. Don't talk to me. And then uh, the three kids expel the armist at the same time and he gets knocked out. And, they, and they're like, oh, Sirius, explain your story to us. And like, Sirius is like, okay, I will, but let me kill the rat. And they're like, no, you can't kill the rat. You have to explain your story. And there's a very long explanation of the story. And then Pettigrew is, is made to emerge. And then he begs everyone to spare his life and no one wants to. And they're about to kill him. But Harry says, no, I'm going to spare your life, but not for you, for my father. And then uh, Lupin ties him up and they get, they get, uh, uh, Snape to follow him out. That was really good. Thanks. Okay, Vanessa, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three, two, one, go. So Hermione is mediating this like very complicated situation. She's like, okay, everybody put your wands down except for me who just stunned Snape and everyone just explain what's going on. And Sirius is like, I was the secret keeper, but I thought that Um, Voldemort was going to attack me and find out. And so I made Peter the secret keeper. But Peter, it turns out, worked for Voldemort the entire time. And he's a really bad guy and he's weak and he should have been willing to die for Lily and James. What a team. I mean, honestly, what a team. I thought it was amazing because as you have reminded me several times, this is a team effort. It's not a competition. (laughs) And if you'll notice from my 30 second recap, I skipped over the middle part. Where where the details of this very complicated story of deception, where all those details are revealed, and you carried our listeners quite quickly and clearly through that long and complicated story. Brava, Vanessa. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. So at the end of this chapter, like, Pettigrew has emerged. He's been forced to reveal himself by Sirius and Lupin. And he's still trying to make up excuses. He's still trying to continue to persuade people of the lie that he has spent the last 13 years persuading them of. And he's failing, and he knows he's about to die. And he goes and he's groveling towards the children to kind of for them to advocate on behalf of his life. But what he really comes across as as what you said as as very weak and cowardly, and not just to the reader. Characters in the book, I think it's serious, says like you you always needed to be by someone strong. Yeah. When we were in school, you had to be by James and me. 
And then you found a stronger person who was Voldemort. And so you ran for him because he was stronger, because you are weak. And so this is my question, because like you, I don't like that Roman definition of virtue. I don't like the idea that virtue is a particular kind of martial bravery, like a willingness to fight and harm others and and sacrifice oneself bodily. Like maybe those are virtues in cases, but for that to be the whole definition of virtue, which is what the Roman definition was, worries me. But it seems to me that if the opposite of virtue is vice, that what we are shown here in this chapter is that the fundamental flaw here with Peter Pettigrew is not that he's evil, but that he's weak. Like weakness mm-hmm. really is the problem here. Weakness really is the, the thing that allows all this evil to return. It allowed the murder of Harry's family so many years ago. It's going to allow the resurrection of Voldemort now. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about weakness being so closely allied with evil, right? Does that follow when we think of courage as a virtue? I don't know. Help me think through this, Vanessa. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with the Jewish answer, which I don't know if I (laughs) agree with or not. But in Judaism, it is never considered a responsibility for you to sacrifice your own life. It is always a virtue to save a life, but that includes your own life. And rabbis are really clear about that. And therefore, sacrificing your own life is its own, not sin, right? But it's definitely not encouraged. And that is the thing that Sirius yells at him, right? Like, you should have died for your friends rather than betray your friends. And I think that that is a lot to ask from someone. The ways to critique Peter, to me, are that he he was spineless, right? Which I'm trying to figure out if that is the same thing as weak. He didn't stand for anything. He stood for, I mean, arguably something similar to what I stood for, which is always feeling a sense of safety and not worried about the risk that his own safety might create a lack of safety for others. And I often, I I think I respect someone like Snape more than someone like Peter. I disagree with Snape, but Snape believes what he believes and sticks to it. Whereas I find something really repugnant, and I'm not sure if it's fair, about someone who's just willing to, like, go where the wind takes them. Yeah, I think that's right. But but don't you think that the root flaw then is some kind of weakness in Pettigrew? Because... Yeah, I... Right? Because I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, Christian ethics is less decisive on the question of when you want to sacrifice yourself. It's... It's certainly not clear. I think some people think that Christian ethics means you must sacrifice yourself, and I think that's a misreading. But regardless yeah. of that, I think with with Pettigrew, though, like, it's as the secret keeper, now he's the one who's going to be tortured, right? Right. So it really is him saving his own skin. He has to choose between saving his own skin or turning to Voldemort, the strong one, and becoming his servant. And so for Peter, like, you know, it's one of those situations where— yeah, I mean, I also don't think we should ever advocate, especially for for the weak, to to sacrifice themselves. But I also get what Sirius is saying when he says, like, I mean, Sirius could have said this much more gently. He has a lot of <laughs> anger and resentment after all his time in Azkaban. But I'm sorry the choice you were left with was be tortured by Voldemort or turn over to Voldemort. But that was the choice you were given, and you made the you made the bad one. And you made that bad one because you were weak and cowardly and not brave enough like all us Gryffindors, right? Which is 
for whom it comes so easily or so naturally or something. I don't know. I, I agree with everything you've just said, really. And and I yeah. really the reason I raise the question is I really worry about associating weakness with evil because that's the strategy of the strong. And that's that's the strategy of of authoritarians who actually try to accrue more power and punish the marginalized and and ostracize and and harm those who who have less power. But I wonder if there's a little bit of that operating even in the critique of Peter here. Yeah. And the thing that complicates this, I think, is at least how I understand some of Sirius's accusations. It's also, you are always playing both sides. You were, yeah. right? Like he was the mole. He was the reason that there had to be a secret keeper. Yeah. He was the one handing information to Voldemort. And yeah, I don't know where, right? Like, I don't know where the line is within myself because I want people to stand for something, but I also <laughs> don't want them to sacrifice themselves. And the lines on those things are really complicated. I think that the the truth is, the reason that I think that I have both of those beliefs is because we live in an imperfect world. And yep. a virtue is about, to some extent, an ideal circumstance, right? It's really easy to live a virtuous life yep. when everyone has enough water and everyone has enough food and everyone yep. has enough mental health care, right? Like. We can be generous to one another when we have more than enough. Yeah. It's much harder to be generous when we don't. Yeah. And so, but yeah, where Peter's weakness comes from is is what complicates all of this for me. Yeah. I mean, this is really interesting because that's actually, that's why I mentioned Aristotle earlier. That's why he calls virtues habits or traits that you cultivate, mm -hmm. right? It's not like something that is just in you and given to you. And it's not like an excellence that just like appears in the moment of crisis. It's actually something you work on every day, right? I work on overcoming my weaknesses or, or my vices every day so that in the moment of crisis, in the imperfect moment where there is no easy decision, because I've cultivated that habit, I can be trusted to make the best decision in an imperfect world. Maybe not one that is perfect because there's no perfect option. But if I spend time cultivating the habit, trying to be courageous, even if it doesn't come naturally to me, right? Then maybe in the moment when I, I need courage, I will do the, do the right thing. Yeah. And so I think that's really important too, right? That, that, that we think about virtues, not as things that take place in an ideal world, but as habits and traits that we try to cultivate to reckon with a world that never meets us the way we want it to. And that needs us to respond in imperfect ways, but ways that we're still responsible for, right? Ways that we still have to take yeah. accountability for. Yeah. I mean, that was the very first story that we told on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was the story of the Huguenot town in France that yep. practiced radical hospitality in a daily way in their yep. lives. They had trap doors built into their houses. They had sheets in their closets. And so when Jews needed a safe harbor in France, right, like they were ready. And I, I love that idea about us getting ourselves ready. Yeah, And it's a lot of work and it's a big commitment. The thing in addition to Peter Pettigrew's weakness that I think we can critique is you made the wrong choice because you had to live for 13 years as a rat, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like people think of life and death and I can imagine being like, look, I'm just protecting myself, but what life is he living now, yeah. right? Like he's a rat in fear of Sirius and then he is going to live with Voldemort and cut off his own hand for Voldemort. Yeah. And so to me, the story of Peter Pettigrew is also a story of like 
the costs of not having integrity, right? Like there's a risk to integrity, but the risk to not having integrity is that you have to live with yourself in a version of yourself that sounds really unjoyful to live. Yeah. And if we're to believe Sirius, he's also been afraid all this time of the Death Eaters who are looking for him, right? So that to spare his own life, he's just placed himself in the same situation where he's always constantly terrified for his life. And also just this question of of self-sacrifice is really complicated with Pettigrew because Voldemort demands such subservience and kind of abject devotion, self-erasure, really. I mean, it's in an interesting way, it's foreshadowed or prefigured by the initial explosion that led to Sirius's arrest because he cut off a finger in that instance to save his life. Yeah. And next he's going to cut off a hand to save his life, right? And Peter's attempt to avoid risk means these like kind of progressive acts of self-destruction, right? Or self-harm. Yeah, it's really, it's, Peter's such a tragic character. I mean, I find myself really bothered reading it because I've, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, the way that characters are drawn in the novels. I worry about, you know, kind of the somatic and bodily representations of who is weak and who is strong and who is good and who is evil. And I don't like how this you know, ostensibly evil or at least weak character is drawn physically by the books as frail and unattractive. And I think he's balding, right? Like, I don't like, I don't like those. shorter than Harry and Hermione. And he's shorter than the children. Like, the, the associations are prejudicial and I don't like it. And on the contrary, I didn't find myself, like, hating him. I felt myself really, like, pitying him. Maybe that's what the novel's made, trying to make me do. But I just, he seems like a really tragic character. Yeah. And I, I felt a lot of, I, even though he is certainly complicit in absolutely evil things, the death of Muggles and the death of many others, I, I also found him a really, like, tragic, tragic character. Yeah, and how we hold tragic characters like that to account is just a really interesting question. I do really feel for him, and yet I just also know within myself that I, I like, I find it repulsive. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Snape thinks he's living virtuously, right? The way that he comes into this room. Yep. He's like, ah, justice, finally. He comes in very, like, masculine, macho, right? Like, he even does this sort of Trojan horse thing of using the invisibility cloak. And I find him repugnant in this scene. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because he's so triumphant. You can tell that he's he's so happy to have caught not just Lupin, but he's also so happy to catch the kids, right? And his feelings of triumph— in catching the kids and catch, it's like every person he resents at the school, <laughs> right? This trio and that trio from his own days, he gets to catch them all at once and win over all of them. And so he just starts yelling at everybody. You're right. It is this kind of Roman macho thing. You know, if we're thinking about virtue as a habit you cultivate, the reason he catches them is because he's doing something virtuous, right? It, we hear at the beginning of the chapter that Snape realizes Lupin forgot to take his wolfsbane this month. And so he concocted up the potion for him Mm -hmm. and is taking it to him, right? He's doing his duty. He's like, here's a guy I don't like who bullied me when I was a kid, but he deserves not to have to suffer for two or three days this month. So even though he forgot to ask me and I could let him suffer, I am going to brew him his wolfsbane and take it to him, which is like, that's that's what Aristotle's talking about. You practice the habit. You do the thing. And then in the moment of crisis, you will do the right thing because you've habituated yourself mm-hmm. to doing the right thing. And that's not at all what happens in the scene. Like, he's he's been making Wolfsbane for Lupin forever. He takes it to him in this instance. But then when he sees the moment, he has no patience. He does not want to hear Lupin talk. He does not want to hear an explanation. He just wants to shout at everybody, tie him up, and let the Death Eaters suck the souls out of them. And he's gleeful about it, which is what I find yeah. so offensive and just like completely unwilling to listen. Like he yeah. is exploiting this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Not just let's send him back to Azkaban, but let's have the Dementors suck the souls out of both of you when yeah. as soon as we get back to Hogwarts. Like it's it's gleefully cruel, which is just really, really uh disturbing. And I think that The moment that I find most troubling is when Hermione is trying to explain it to him. Yeah. And he not only is mean in how he shuts up Hermione, but he's like, I don't want to listen. Right? Like, I have caught you in a way that will allow me to treat you poorly. I don't care what's really going on. And that lack of curiosity, right, like, is one of the ways that at least Stephanie Paulsell talks about being profane, right? Is like when something is no longer open and generous and curious and hopeful, that is when it becomes profane. And like yeah. this to me is profane, is to 
close your eyes to the complexities of situation and be like, nope, technically I caught you. There's just something so deeply cynical about that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also, I mean, you spoke of the gleefulness, which is a great word. I think there's also something about Hermione is a great student and Hermione usually knows the right answer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And as a teacher at the school, he usually has to begrudgingly kind of accept that she knows the right answer and maybe make a sharp comment when she makes the right answer. But here he gets to tell her, no, you don't know what you're talking about, which is what he. Yeah. Right. It just reveals like this resentment that's always been there, even for this well-intentioned, excellent student whose only desire is to please her teachers, right? Like, he still, he thinks of her as a know-it-all too, and that's why he loves telling her she doesn't know what she's talking about in this chapter, which is, yeah, it's just revealing a bad side of Snape. Which also, like, one of the amazing things about it is that, you know, the 13-year-old girl is still right. Is still right, absolutely, absolutely. And so he's just, again, proving the ways that this kind of virtuous machismo is just ridiculous. Yeah. I will say that at first Hermione is glad that an authority has arrived, right? She's like, we're up here, right? And then it's like, oh, a teacher's arrived. Like something good is going to happen, right? Like the, the truth is going to be able to get sorted out now. And then again, I Snape just betrays that entirely. Yeah. There are a couple other instances of virtue I hope we can hit. Please. Especially if we think about virtue as a habit cultivated so that in the moment of crisis, we react in the right way or in a way that that protects others or ourselves. One of my favorite moments in this chapter is when, unspoken, without plan, the three children at the exact same time all cast an Expelliarmus curse. Now, this leads to too much mm-hmm. because it concusses <laughs> Snape, which is not what any of the three of them intended. But it doesn't just concuss him, it knocks him out. Yes, right. Knocks him out and he's bleeding, right? From the yeah. head. And everyone's fairly unconcerned. But <laughs> but to me, this speaks to like the idea of virtue as a habit. Like we have two and three quarters, maybe two and four fifths books of these three children, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, having routinely practiced being courageous, sticking up for each other, taking action when necessary not trusting adults when adults let you down, like all these things, so that in this moment of crisis, when things really are about to get bad, the three of them just spontaneously exemplify the same virtue and take this, the identical action at the same time. It's charming because they're so such three different characters, their personalities are so different, but having practiced for almost three books, these particular traits in their adventures together, they all kind of instinctively do the same thing at the same time. Yeah, and it's just trying to disarm, right? They weren't trying to hurt him at all. It's absolutely. this, like, really beautiful instinct. Right, exactly, right. Oh, I absolutely love it. And yeah, I, they are. They are, sadly, at the age of 13, super practiced in this. Yep, they've developed the habit. It is disturbing. Yep, yep. <laughs> what do you make of the moment, Matt, in which Harry says, let's not kill Peter. My dad would not want for the two of you to become murderers. Do you feel like it's fair for him to be talking on behalf of a man who he doesn't really know. <laughs> well, that's that's the other situation of virtue I wanted to talk about. Like, is this... I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. I think the way you frame it is really interesting. Is So you're asking, what what do I think about him saying my dad would not want him? Yeah. Want you two to become killers. My dad would not want his friends to become killers. <sighs> I don't know if I think that's true. What do you think, Vanessa? I, I mean... 
my reading is going to go against the spoken words of Harry himself. So I'm I'm going to hold it back for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I think like the more honest thing to say where Harry actually takes ownership of his own feelings. And again, I am not criticizing this 13-year-old child. Yep. I'm just, you know, saying that I, I think that the way to go is to say, I don't want my dad's best friends to become murderers. Yep. Like, I wouldn't want my best friends to become murderers for me. And so I don't want you to become murderers for my dad. There's just something weird about not taking responsibility or credit for the instinct. It's a beautiful instinct, and it's Harry's instinct. And if he's inspired by the idea of his father, great. Yeah. But I still think, like, I don't want you to do that out of honor to my father, whatever. Yeah. I agree because I honestly we don't have a lot of characterization of James in these in these novels and who knows how James would have changed these last 13 years had he been alive. Yeah. But honestly, I think if James is in the room with Remus and and Sirius, the three of them kill Peter together. I mean, I think that Yeah. I don't know why James would feel so different from from Sirius or or Remus. That's why I think I don't know if I believe it when Harry says that. Well, I mean, I do think that one of the things that's brilliant about this scene is that it puts us in the same position as Harry. Harry doesn't want his dad's best friends to become killers, and we don't want Harry to become a killer. Yeah. It also feels like what Harry wants is for the world to make sense. Yeah. Right? And he's like, it doesn't make sense if my father's best friends are murderers, right? Like. It doesn't make sense if if Lupin is attacked for being a good werewolf or if Sirius yep. is. Like, he is trying to restore a sense of logic to this unruly world, yeah. a moral logic. Yeah. And I think that that is part of what makes Harry beautiful, is his, like, constant desire to restore a sense of justice to the world. Yeah. If we understand this as a virtuous stance that Harry makes— and I don't know if we do. I mean, I, I think... Well, it strategically backfires. It strategically backfires. That's what I mean, right? I think I think I could be open yeah. to people saying that it wasn't virtuous. But even if we, if we understand it that way, or even if we don't, like, what are the habits that he has cultivated to take this stand in this moment? Like, this is a difficult moment for him, right? Like, yeah, he, the, these people he respects, Remus, and I think he's come to respect Sirius really suddenly when he hears this full story. Like, these people who knew his parents, these people are saying the person who killed your parents deserves to die. I mean, he's 13. There's a lot going on in this room. And something gives rise to him taking this action. Like, what? maybe it's all the courage that he's practiced. Maybe it's his suspicion of adults and their ability to care for him throughout these books. Maybe that's why he's willing to stand up for himself here or stand up for what he believes, even if it does strategically backfire. If this is a virtue, what are the habits that he's cultivated that leads him to, to enact this virtue now? I mean, I also think one of the ways that we see abuse bear out is that people sort of either continue the cycle of abuse or are able to resist it. Hmm. And Harry grew up as a victim of abuse and I think is going to spend his life trying really hard to resist perpetuating that cycle. He sees the monstrousness of the Dursleys and I think it's really possible that he is... Yeah you know, trying to say, like, I will never be that. I will never do that. Yeah. And that is its own kind of commitment, right? Of, like, I do not want to be anything like that. Yeah, right. And also that, like, 
I hadn't really thought of this before, but like the Dursleys and Vernon especially, and Dudley too, totally exemplify this Roman idea of virtue, which is like machismo power is what counts. Being strong is what counts. Being loud and brash and abusive is what counts. And weakness is to be beaten out of you, right? And so you could see how the revelation of this character who is so weak could arouse maybe not sympathy, but yeah, pity in in Harry, or at least a reluctance to become too much like the Dursleys, too much like what he suffered under for for 11 years. Yeah. So Vanessa, this week, our spiritual practice is the practice of florilegium where each of us will choose a line from the chapter, what we call a sparklet, to read alongside one another and see what new meanings or ideas emerge. So do you have a sentence that you've selected for us? I do. It is, there's nothing seriously wrong with him. Interesting. Who Who is the him here? So the him is Snape, and okay. it's Lupin who's talking. And it's after the kids have expelliarmist Snape to <laughs> a prone figure you know, just like passed out on the ground. Yeah. And what does seriously wrong with someone mean? There are a lot of things seriously wrong with Snape. He is passed out on the floor. So there's that. He's also deeply enraged. There's that. I find it just interesting on a like, what, to quote Princess Bride, I don't think that means what you think it means. (laughs) Like there are a lot of things seriously wrong with Snape. In this moment. And I just know that I've had moments like that, right? Where someone will like hold me and be like, it'll be fine. And I'm like, no, it will be changed forever, right? Like these things that we say to soothe are often just like deeply, deeply untrue or at least speculative, right? If someone's like, you'll be okay. I'm like, you don't know that. Anyway, that is why this sparkles up at me is because it is, Lupin is saying it in order to assuage the concerns of the children. I think it works. I think they're like, oh, yeah. he's fine. Yeah. But it is It is just, it's a lie. I'm not even sure Lupin knows it's a lie, but it's a lie. And if I remember correctly, this happens right when they start to move Snape at the end of the chapter, right? So there's been like a whole chapter and this whole story told where Snape has been lying, bleeding on the ground. And then I don't know if Lupin has like a Metascan spell where he just right right? he's just like oh he's fine he looks okay don't worry about that blood coming from his head (laughs) right (laughs) like yeah it's a curious statement what about you matt what what sentence sparkled up at you my sentence is this black's face looked more skull-like than ever as he stared at Pettigrew with his fathomless eyes Ooh, yeah where's that from this moment happens almost immediately after peter has been transformed back into his human shape, human status or whatever. <laughs> form? But, yeah, form, I guess. Transformed back into his human form by Remus and Sirius. And Sirius really wants to kill Peter, and he is looking at him hatefully. And and I guess I just sparkled up at me because I like the, the description. I mean, the more skull-like than ever is what's making him look more skull-like, this hatefulness, like this fact that he is feeling this hate so acutely in the moment is just about to kill or just about to try to kill Peter and that that's what makes his face skull-like. And I also just like the idea of 
his fathomless eyes. First of all, because this modifier is dangling, right? We actually don't know whose eyes are fathomless. I think mm. that it's Black's eyes that are meant to be fathomless because he's the one that's staring. But presumably he's also staring into Peter's eyes. And we hear a lot about how kind of beady Peter's eyes are elsewhere in the book. I don't know, the fact that both of them are emptied out somehow, right? That the life that they have been living for the last 13 years, that both of them, their souls have been emptied or somehow so that their eyes could be fathomless. There's a reciprocity or a mirroring there, which I think the grammatical unclarity actually serves to to draw out. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm just trying to conjure what it means to have fathomless eyes. It's eyes that can't understand what they're seeing, right? Yeah, maybe, because fathom didn't turn to understand, right? Like, I couldn't fathom yeah. that. I, I was thinking about fathom as, like, depth, right? So something that's fathomless, I think, is, like, depthless. Like, they, they go on forever. You look into the eyes, and there's no, right? That's why I was thinking about emptiness. Like, it, if, if you look into an eye, like, looking down a, an abyss or a pit that has no bottom, right? Yeah. An abyss that was fathomless would be one that went down forever, right? And so, like, looking into these eyes, there's yep. just, like, this deep emptiness behind them, and I think that deep emptiness could characterize either Pettigrew or Black. Absolutely. And that certainly they're fathomless when looking at each other, right? Yeah. There's just nothing but pain and betrayal yeah. and these like and hatred deep and fear. Wells yeah. of, yeah. 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 Okay, let's put them together. Great. There's nothing seriously wrong with him. Black's face looked more skull like than ever as he stared at Pettigrew with his fathomless eyes. I mean, it works really well. I mean, in the sense that you were looking, that you were talking about your sentence, which is like right. you're trying to paper over a deep problem, right? Oh, there's nothing wrong with him. And then you see his skull-like face and his fathomless eyes. Yeah. Right. I mean, it again feels like the way that you'll often hear like doctors who understandably see the world differently than we do, right? We'll look at a cancer patient and be like, oh, they're fine. And you're like, except for the fact that they're riddled yeah. with cancer, right? Yeah, And right. so it's just like... The two of these sentences together, like, right, this, like, diagnostic, his face looked more skull-like than ever as he did, right? Like, it's almost reporting. Yeah. And then it's, like, based on these facts, I still feel comfortable saying there's nothing seriously wrong with him. It's just amazing the things that we stop seeing as wrong with other people or, right, like, yeah. You can walk in a prison and be like, oh, everything here is in order. And it's like, well, is it? We've yeah. put humans in cages. Yeah. I'm going to read them in the other order, Vanessa. I have a feeling we're going to have a very similar reading. But who knows what will emerge because we are open and curious and this, these lines are sacred. That is a profane point of You're view. Right. Right, let's, let's keep it sacred. Keep it sacred, folks. <laughs> okay. Black's face looked more skull-like than ever as he stared at Pettigrew with his fathomless eyes. There's nothing seriously wrong with him. Oh, that changes. I did get a different meaning. Yeah, what did you get? I did. See, we are keeping it sacred. (laughs) Because now this looks like everything I was saying before that like, oh, Pettigrew is too weak for us to, to murder him. Even if we resent him, he should have our pity. It's almost like... This is Black speaking now and yep. rendering judgment on Pettigrew, which is like, there's no reason to be sympathetic to him. There's no reason we need to show mercy now because there's nothing wrong with him in the sense that would mitigate our decision or our rationale for our actions. Yeah, it, it reminds me of this term that I learned from Reese Witherspoon and Legally Blonde of mens rea, which means like 
guilty mind. And right, like reading the sentences in this order is Black hating Peter Pettigrew and saying, and the worst of it is, is that he's in his right mind, right? Like that there's nothing wrong with him. There's no reason to pity him. Yeah, he's making this choice. And whether or not we ever really want to look at someone with those eyes, right? Well, thanks. I was I was skeptical about a new meaning emerge, but I actually I think we got a really great one. That second reading I think was really it really opened up Black's character in, in interesting ways. That's great. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for doing this with me. You can also measure the success of a spiritual practice by whether or not I get to mention legally blonde. So thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Vanessa, what's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Folklore. What's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Evermore. Ooh, so close to being right, but wrong. Now, see, I was taking a completely different interpretation of our favorite albums because we're in the same era, Uh but we have different favorites. I think it's why we have such great conversations, because we have similar sympathies and tastes, but there's enough difference to make it interesting. I don't know why it has to be about winning and losing. You're right, Matt. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. (laughs) Matt, I do feel like there are some listeners who just heard that and were like, I think that Matt and Vanessa are talking in a secret code, but the rest of you are Swifties. And for you, we have an incredible pilgrimage coming up with Margaret H. Wilson. I am also going, and your wife Colette Potts is also going, because you could try to keep us away from a Taylor Swift pilgrimage, but you would fail. This is going to be on Cape Cod at this beautiful place called Auto Camp. And so we are going to go to this beautiful landscape and talk both about folklore and Evermore because they are complimentary albums. And we're going to reflect on questions like, what does thinking about my life as a story allow me to see in a different way? Or do I have stories or memories that might be easier to share in a fictional framework? And what fables do I wish existed to guide me right now? So if you love close reading, if you love Taylor Swift, if you would love to go on a pilgrimage, you should come and look into this. Go to readingandwalkingwith.com to claim one of our very few remaining spots on this great trip today. That's readingandwalkingwith.com. We now have a voice memo from Jessica. And just a warning, uh, Jessica is going to mention some of the recent shootings that we've had in the United States. And if you would rather not hear those crimes referenced or hear us talk about them, please skip ahead a bit. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Jessica. 
I'm listening to your episode on book three, chapter 14, and about wisdom, and about how Hogwarts seems to be implementing all the wrong, unwise solutions in the wake of the attack by Sirius. I'm calling in on May 26th, just a couple of days after a horrendous school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, not that far from my home. And I cannot help but see the parallels between what Hogwarts is doing and what we as a nation are doing. Like the people at Hogwarts, we know what the problem is, but we're implementing the wrong decisions. We're making the wrong judgments. Instead of addressing the problem of guns and of white supremacy and of the issues that lead so many young white men to carry out attacks like this. We are instead turning again to the schools and saying, you must solve this problem. You must have better drills. You must have your teachers armed against intrusions. You must be the solution to a problem that we have created. We have the knowledge that this is not the answer. We know that there are nations around the world who do not experience school shootings at the rate that we do in the ways that we do. And yet instead of implementing solutions, making judgments that would fix the problem, we're doing the unwise thing. And people are dying, dying in schools, in grocery stores, at movie theaters, in their houses of worship, and so many other places. I hope that we can look at a text like this and see how unwise it is and then carry that out into the world, for is that not what you are trying to do in reading this text sacredly? Thank you for all you do. Jessica, thank you so much for this really impassioned voicemail. I think we're just really grateful to have these things shared from a different from a different voice, things that we are also passionate about. Thank you, Jessica. It is now time for us to honor people who have been loved and lost. A listener submitted the names of the victims of the shooting in Buffalo, New York. And so those are the names that we will be reading today. Roberta A. Drury, who is 32. Margus D. Morrison, 52. Andre McNeil, who is 53. Aaron Salter, who is 55. Geraldine Talley, who was 62. Celestine Cheney, who was 65. 
Hayward Patterson, who was 67. Catherine Massey, who was 72. Pearl Young, who was 77. And Ruth Whitfield, who was 86. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, now it's time for us to offer blessings for characters in the chapter. Who would you like to bless? No, Vanessa, I think I want to bless Harry. I feel like I consciously try to avoid blessing Harry. I think because he's the protagonist, right? And so I'm trying to look in some of the in some of the corners where other people are doing important or heroic things or or just things that deserve our recognition. And again, like you said in this conversation, strategically it may be the wrong decision to spare Peter. But yeah, I really I respect Harry for making this choice, even if the reason he gives is not one I find especially believable and taking the stand in this moment and the stand that he does erring on the side of mercy. To me, that's a virtue and took some courage and resolve and integrity for Harry to do that. And so blessings to him for it. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I want to bless Ron. There is a moment at the end of the chapter where Sirius says that two of us should be chained to Peter just to make sure he doesn't run off and that Peter has been threatened if he, you know, turns into a rat. And Ron says that he'll do it, that he will chain himself to Peter. And then later it says Ron's face was set. He seemed to have taken Scabbers's true identity as a personal insult. Hmm. And I, I think that we as humans have an instinct to blame ourselves for things that aren't our faults. Right, we'll often be like, oh, if I would have gone to the doctor sooner, I would have noticed, whatever it is, when really it's just the bad thing's fault, right? Ron didn't do anything wrong in sheltering Peter Pettigrew. He thought he had a pet. And so I just want to bless him for taking responsibility for something that wasn't even his doing and just say, like, he did nothing wrong. (laughs) Say, Say to all of our listeners, that we often find ourselves in situations in which we're blaming ourselves and we didn't do anything wrong. And I hope that you can forgive yourself for those moments. So Matt, next week, we're going to be reading book three, chapter 20, The Dementor's Kiss, through the theme of confidence. Confidence. Great. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to Jessica for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehak, and to the listener who sent in the names of those who were killed in the Buffalo shooting.
episode, everyone, just so you know, I'm recording in Cammie's room today. And so it might be a little echoey, but I'm worth it. And it's because we're, we are making improvements to our home. The state of Massachusetts is insulating our house so it can be more energy efficient. And Matt has generously offered that I recorded his house. Anyway, blooper reel, that's why the episode sounds weird. Chapter 19, 